You're listening to Conversations with John Anderson, featuring Zuby. My guest today, Zuby, is an independent rapper, author, podcast host, public speaker, creative entrepreneur. He has over a million and a half followers on social media. He was born in England, raised in Saudi Arabia. He's a graduate of Oxford University, sold tens of thousands of albums independently, performed in eight countries, and gained over 20 million online video views. His podcast, Real Talk with Zuby, has surpassed 3 million downloads and reaches thousands of listeners every week. Zuby has featured on the Joe Rogan Experience, the BBC, Fox News, the Rubin Report, the Candace Owens Show, and the Ben Shapiro Show, amongst others. He's also written a book called The Candy Calamity, which teaches children about nutrition and self-control. You were born in England. You grew up in Saudi Arabia. Uh, your father was a doctor. Yep. You yourself have studied at Oxford. Tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. Well, you, you've covered the uh, summary of it there. But that's right. Um, I was born in the UK, in Luden, to be specific, and moved out to Saudi Arabia when I was just a baby. My dad's a medical doctor got the opportunity to work out there. So myself, my parents, all my older siblings, we all went out to Saudi Arabia. And that is where all my earliest memories are. When I was there from, I studied there from kindergarten all the way up until fifth grade, 11 years old. So I was in the American school system for those years. And most of my teachers were American. I grew up in an expat community. So there were people from all over the world but my, I'd say my education and you know, the reason I have the accent that I do is because I was essentially in the American school system taught by American teachers and surrounded by a lot of North Americans during those early formative years. What was that like? Saudi Arabia? No, general, no, the or? American teaching. It was good. It was good. I think I, I had a good education. I see a lot of the madness going on in the education system in various countries around the world now that people are concerned about. And I kind of think, wow, thank God I didn't have to deal with any of that. I just learned the stuff I was supposed to learn, and I think it put me in good stead for my future. So I'm grateful for that. Um, at the age of 11, I went to boarding school. So I was still living in Saudi Arabia, but from 11 years old, I was back and forth flying by myself between the two countries. And I was in boarding school for seven years. In England. In England, that's right, in England. Still living in Saudi Arabia, but going back and forth. And then I was always a good student at school, did really well in school, both in Saudi and in the UK. Did my people from from England would have heard of GCSEs and A-levels. So I got top grades in every single subject, got into Oxford University, studied computer science there for three years. Not philosophy or history or computer science? No, computer science. Um, As much as people, some people see me as a philosopher these days, but I've also got a very scientific mind and I'm interested in technology and so on. So I thought that would be a good subject for me to study. And that's where my music career also started. So I started, uh, I became a hip hop fan in boarding school when I was probably about 12 or 13 years old. I really started just loving hip hop music and culture. And then once I was in university, when I was 18 years old, that's when I wrote my first rap, just as a hobby, just out of boredom. And I got into it pretty quickly. I actually released my first album, Commercial Underground, about 10 months after I started rapping. Released it when I was in my second year of university. And that's when the spark went off as, okay, this is something I can do as more than just a hobby. 
first first run of CDs I ever did was just 50 copies. Um, I sold those all in a few days. I took the money I made from that. I went back. I made a couple. I think 250. Sold all of those. Went back. Made a thousand copies. And I ended up selling over 3,000 copies independently, hand to hand, of my first album over time. So that was the moment. That was the shift when it was like, okay, this is something I can do as more than just a hobby. I often tell people who are interested in music or other creative endeavors that there's quite a big chasm between doing something as just a hobby versus doing it as a career path. And so after I graduated, I took a year out. I did my music full time for one year. I traveled all over the UK, did a lot of gigs, released a second album called The Unknown Celebrity and promoted and sold that hand to hand out there on the street promoting my music. Just I used to Anyone who knows my story knows I was just out there talking to people. I was all over the country just talking to people, selling my music, putting in the legwork. And out of university, I had a job offer to go and work for a management consulting company. So I actually moved to London in 2008. I worked for this company for three years while doing my music stuff on the side. And then in November 2011, I decided to go full time with my music, give it all my time all my energy and see what I could really build with it. And for the past 11 years now, I've been on this independent journey, which has expanded beyond music now, gone into the world of podcasting and writing and public speaking and doing interviews such as this and connecting with people all over the world. And it's really been an adventure. So this is how we got to where we are now. Before we explore what you do with your music yeah. and the fact that it's relatively you know, it's positive and forward-looking stuff, not inward and dark like mm -hmm. a lot of rappers, we might think. Um, you have an extraordinary ability to engage with people. My impression is that you actually really enjoy interacting with other people. You're yes. a very warm person. So you must have found right through school and university that cultural, racial backgrounds, so called mm. differences didn't mean much. Would that be right? That would be very accurate. It's yeah. something that I've been... Somehow, I'm really grateful for the way that I've grown up. I'm, I understand I've had an atypical background, but what's interesting with the way people grow up is your upbringing is just your upbringing. As a child, especially, you don't really think of it as being particularly different or strange or anything like that. And of course, being somewhere like Saudi Arabia in an expat community, most of my friends I had growing up also were living the same life I was and their parents were doing something similar and so on. And then I had the opportunity, of course, to go to boarding school and then university. So growing up, I had heavy influence from four different countries, cultures in particular. So, of course, Saudi Arabia, the UK, which is where I'm originally from. And I'd go visit and I went to school and then um, Nigeria, of course, and then the USA, because I was in an American school and I was surrounded by Americans all the time. So I was able to unknowingly, I guess, instill ideas and perspectives from these different cultures, let alone the different countries I've traveled to during then and since then, into the way I view and think about the world and about the human condition. And I think in everything I do, from my music to my podcasting to social media, public speaking, I'm able to draw on quite a range of different experiences and perspectives. Now, when I was in school, it was a very diverse community in the truest sense of the word, in, of, sorry, the truest sense of the word. Of course, Saudi Arabia is a predominantly very, very heavily Muslim Islamic country. In the expat community, you had Muslims, Christians, 
um, atheists, Hindus, people of all different religious backgrounds, all different nationalities. If you look at a picture of my preschool class or my kindergarten class, it was just, you know, it looked like a little, little UN or something like that. So from day one, I've always just been surrounded by all different sorts of people. And the idea that someone's skin color or ethnic background or uh, nationality or anything like that should or is some big deal that I'm supposed to focus on or think about. Like none of that ever even came to my mind, which is one of the strange things that's sort of happened. If you see a lot of the things that have been happening with the identity politics that's playing in the West right now over the past decade, it's quite curious to me because I'm like, that's very far removed from how I was raised and how I was grew up, how I grew up and my own worldview and experiences. That's just not the, that's not the framework that I view the world in. Um, but it was a very blessed upbringing. I'm very glad that I've was able to have it in that way. And I'm glad that people are interested in hearing my perspective and that I'm able to reach such a broad range of people. I mean, I'll be honest with you right now. The fact that I'm, I'm sitting here in Sydney, Australia, chatting with you is like, Wow, like this is... Don't, don't get too personal, I know I'm no, an old guy. No, but it, it's, it's yeah. amazing to me. I mean, I'm from 10,000 miles away. Yeah. And everything I've done, mm-hmm. I've done independently. I'm not someone who ever signed to a big label or company or had millions of mm. dollars or pounds put into me to promote me out mm. to the world or anything. It's been very, very organic. So when I'm traveling around Australia now or the USA or all these different countries and the fact that there are people who know and care about what I do to any degree, let alone a large degree, is is, is pretty amazing to me. And um, I'm always excited about my life. And I'm just like, man, I can't wait to see how this all plays out because it's just an ongoing adventure. Well, that's tremendous. Let, let me ask this question. Sure. In those school and university environments and all those places you've been in, you've talked about diversity uh, in a way that I think is really important because mm-hmm. in Australia, when we hear all the language about inclusion and equity and diversity, Diversity usually ends up meaning, well, we'll have somebody with that color of skin, Mm -hmm. someone of that gender, we'll have someone of whatever, physical characteristics. Yes. But you dare not deviate from the line in terms of beliefs (laughs) or thinking. Yes. You're really nailing the reality that you've been able to mix across people of genuine diversity in Mm -hmm. terms of what they believe, where they're coming from, their worldviews, the lot. That seems to me to be something we're really missing. In fact, instead of becoming more open to diversity. Mm. I think in the West, we're closing in. Mm. We're actually limiting diversity Yeah, I think, in the name of advancing diversity. Yeah, I think you're right. I think a lot of people's view of diversity either is code for fewer straight white men or is code for people who have different skin colors but all think the same thing, right? Ideological homogeneity, essentially, but some type of racial or ethnic diversity on a surface level. And People don't think about the concept very deeply. I think diversity is one of those buzzwords that people like to throw out there. Every single company or organization or institution is gonna talk about diversity and maybe even have diversity training and this and this. But it's like, well, what does that really mean? How, how deep are we going to go in it? And what is a level of diversity that, on, le- well, on what levels does diversity work and on what levels does it not? On what levels is it a strength? On what levels is it a challenge? And I think if you're being totally honest, you'd recognize that diversity in itself is not, to, to me, it's a weird target. To me, diversity isn't something that should be a target. It's something that's a natural byproduct of treating people 
fairly and openly. Human beings are incredibly diverse. As you've alluded to, diversity goes beyond people having different skin colors or ethnic backgrounds. Human beings are inherently diverse. You take a room of 100 people, and there's going to be some degree of diversity in that room because they're not going to all naturally think the same way or believe the same things. They're going to have different backgrounds in all sorts of ways, different perspectives. And so I think that the word diversity has kind of been hijacked a little to not necessarily mean what it's supposed to. And I think people are also uncomfortable with recognizing that, you know, you often hear someone like Justin Trudeau or some of these uh, politicians or progressive type activists in general, you're saying things like diversity is our strength. And it's like, well, what does that mean? What does that mean? Yeah, what, do, what does What's that mean? What's it supposed to mean? Yeah, I, I, I don't even know. I don't, I don't understand. It's kind of a buzzword. You know, it's a buzz phrase. People say it and people clap. But it's like, well, diversity has, it, it also has pros and cons. It's a natural thing, but it has pros and cons. If you have a country, if you have a nation, if you have a culture, there has to be, there have to be things in common, right? So you can't just and I, again, I say this as someone who grew up in the Middle East, right? And you can recognize that there are certain things that can be incompatible to various degrees, right? So <laughs> in the UK or in other Western countries, for example, it can be funny because you'll have something like Pride Month <laughs> or this you know, celebration of the so-called LGBTQIAAP plus community, I, I, 2S, I, I don't know the whole acronym. The whole uh, thing these days, and then well, it depends where you live, actually. Okay, how many letters are in the password? Yeah, there are um, fewer in England than there oh, are here, right. <laughs> okay. as I understand it. Interesting. Yeah, so yeah. so you'll you'll have that, and then juxtaposition. You know, you'll have this sort of pro-Muslim or pro-Islam thing, and as, again, as someone who grew up in Saudi, you're like, well, how compatible are these things here? Right. That's so. And sometimes it comes to a head. I mean, that happened in some of the schools, especially in the Midlands in the UK, where you had large groups of Muslim parents threatening to withdraw their children from schools and protesting schools because they didn't like some of the ideas and ideologies that were being, you know, they don't want their children learning about infinite genders and transgenderism and you know, the LGBT stuff. Like, that's not what they want. And that's an obvious, very obvious incompatibility. But because of the political correctness, it's, it's this landmine issue, right? I mean, one blessing I have is that I'm, I'm quite happy to jump on landmines that people are not. Um, even with that particular issue, like, no, it, it's very obvious that, okay, those things might not work side by side in the way you magically want them to. And people are just like, okay, like, let's just pretend that they do. And it's like, well, at some point, those different agendas are going to come to some type of head. And I think we recognize, um, you know, with the concept of multiculturalism, of course you can have people from all types of nationalities and backgrounds, races, ethnicities, and so on in a city, in a country, or whatever, living together. But again, there has to be, there have, there have to be commonalities. There, there has to be genuine, there have to be genuine tolerances. Um, that's another word that gets hijacked, this concept of tolerance, where people like to, like to say it, but how tolerant are some of the people who, who like to say it? Um, tolerance, inclusion, diversity, equity, all, all, all of these terms, I think we, we speak about them on a very superficial level, but when you go into them in more detail, you find that it's a little bit more complicated 
and there are more trade-offs potentially involved with some of it than I think people realize, let alone feel comfortable discussing. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. Um, in some ways, some people might, if I'm sitting here thinking, this is easy for Zuby in one way. I mean, yeah. who, who's going to argue with you? I have black privilege. <laughs> well, I was going to mention that as well. But for a start, <laughs> for a start no one's going to take you on. Um, you've used that strength to some interesting exper experiments, I think, in, mm. in, in, uh, in, in social theory, if I can put it that way. <laughs> for a second, you're infectious, but then you're black. Mm. Who can argue with those? Um, but good on you for being positive. Tell me yeah. about... Uh, I think you've used your sheer physical strength in an interesting way to prove a point. Can we explore that for a moment? Uh, I assume you're alluding to me breaking the British women's deadlift record. Yeah, dude, just say that slowly so the listeners can really get it. Yeah. it. You broke the British women's deadlift record after temporarily identifying as a woman. <laughs> yeah. Tell us more. Yeah, there's... Okay, so, so I, I'd seen this issue popping up from around... I want to say about 2015 or 2016, this whole issue of biological males yeah. identifying as women and competing in female sports at the professional level, high school level, college level. I was especially seeing it happening in the USA, yeah. I think a little bit in Canada as well. And it was inevitable and obvious to me that this is something that's going to come to a head. Again, when certain ideas are being pushed and you can see a little bit down the line, second, third, fourth order thinking and think, okay, well, where does that, where does that lead? And so <laughs> in February, 2019, after in one day seeing multiple stories about this actually happening, there were two high school incidents that had happened actually that were out in the news that day about males competing against females in sport and thrashing them, I think breaking records in this case. This was happening at the high school level in the USA. And out of curiosity, I was just like, man, I wonder what the British women's deadlift record is because I'm a strong guy. Um, I was like, it's probably, it's probably lower than my max. So I did, did, a, did, a, did a quick Google search and I think it was 210 or 215 kilos in my weight class and my, my max was 275. And I just had this video on my phone. I did, some people think I actually entered a competition. I didn't enter a competition, but I just had this video on my phone from one of my training sessions of me doing a 230 kilogram deadlift with ease. And so I just posted it on Twitter. I had about 18,000 followers on the platform at the time. And I just said, I keep hearing about how biological men have no strength advantage over women in 2019. So watch me destroy the British women's deadlift record without trying. P.S. I identified as a woman whilst lifting the weight. Don't be a bigot. I just put that out there thinking, I tweeted it like I tweet. I've got over 100,000 tweets. I wasn't there thinking, okay, this is, this is my strategy to reach millions of people. And it went crazy. It just went insane. Within about 10 minutes, I think the video had 10,000 views, um, hit 100,000 within a matter of hours. I went to bed that night, 300,000, wake up in the morning, half a million, one million, two million. It went bonkers. It went insane. And within about, within 48 hours, I was getting contacted by various media channels, the Sunday Telegraph, BBC, Sky News, Fox News in the USA. I was just getting all these people reaching out to me saying, we we want to talk to you about what you've just done and we want to talk about this issue and so on. And, and I think that the timing of it, plus the video, plus the humor, just really, plus the fact that it was one of these landmine issues, it just caused this to explode. I am amazed at how the elites continue to push this particular issue 
And if you say the wrong thing on it, you trip over minefields, you get blown up like you wouldn't believe. But I know from the research out there in Boterland, mm. if I can put it that way as a former, <clears throat> you know, um, someone involved in politics, they think this is nuts. Mm-hmm. They think it's nuts. Yes. Is it overreach? Will it start yes, to produce overreach. a serious reaction? You yeah. know, come on, let's find some sensible ground again. Or do the elites have such control now that they're just going to continue to ram no, it, it It's already <clears throat> happening. It's already happening. I mean, it's been interesting because, again, that was February 2019 when I posted that. And when I posted that, the issue was not being discussed in the way that it is now. I think people were genuinely shocked. People were... Said, what do we do with this? Yeah. It, firstly, it wasn't on a lot of people's radar. Yeah. I think a lot of people didn't realize how far that push and insanity had gone and was going. I think now that people are seeing what's happening with children in particular, with the ideology being pushed onto them, as well as the, I mean, this, with this particular issue, if you're talking about the, the, uh, the drugs and you're trying to, like, sur- doing surgeries, let's be real. They are do, performing double mastectomies on children, underage girls. They are doing, they're giving hormone blockers and cross-sex hormones to minors. Um, there are cases where they are chemically or literally castrating young boys, all under the name of they, all the, everything they call gender affirming care. Affirmative care. That's what it is. Mm. That's that's yeah. the euphemism, gender affirming yeah. care, mm. care for trans, medical yeah. care for trans youth, and so on. That that's what they call it. But that's that's what they're doing. And we right? know that's, that most of them will sort those issues out. Absolutely. Puberty progresses. Yes. And they come out the other end. Yes, absolutely. So when it comes to this issue, I think. Most people view it from a sort of adult libertarian lens of, okay, whether or not I understand or agree with this, if we live in a free society and you're an adult and you want to take hormones or have a surgery or do this or do that, generally speaking, okay, I might not like it, I might not agree with it, I might not understand it, but that's your life to live. But I think when you cross the line with children and what what's being pushed in schools, what's happening in the medical world and so on. And when people become awake to that and see, oh, wow, okay, this is, um, this is wrong. This is crazy. This is where we're experimenting on a generation of young people. Yeah. And, it's when, and it's people's own kids. Then I think that's when you start getting the pushback. The sports issue is a big one, of course. Um, I don't think it's, I mean, that... <laughs> <laughs> it's insane in itself, but I think the one with children is, is, is more insane and more immoral. But women are being pushed out of their own spaces, out of their own sports, and it, it's not sustainable. You're going to have pushback from conservatives, from fem- feminists, from sane liberals, from centrists, anyone who's just got some degree of courage and who isn't completely ideologically captured by these ideas, people are going to increasingly push back. And so I do see that pendulum going the other way because it's all masked in this idea of compassion, right? That's how it's always masked. It's masked, masked in safety, yeah. safety language. If we use the long language, language the, yes. the children will take their own lives. There's no evidence to, to back that up at all, but that doesn't mm-hmm. seem to matter in this age. No, because they don't care about truth. Yeah. But I think ultimately one thing that always gives me hope and keeps me optimistic is I think in the long run, in the long term, I think truth always wins. If you just take the sports issue, okay? 
If you allow the concept that anyone who is anyone who identifies as a woman is a woman, and if you ask the people who are either cowards or ideologically captured what a woman is, they will say a woman is anyone who identifies as a woman. They all have the same answer all across the Western world somehow magically.、Um, so it's like okay, I mean that's what I did in 2019. I said okay, cool, I'm a woman. Boom, British women's deadlift record holder. Oh, you know what? I'll take the bench press record too while I'm here, right? And it's like okay, well by your own logic. By your own logic, I'm the strongest woman in Britain now, and so either you have to accept me as that, or you have to go well. Okay, maybe, maybe you're not really a woman. And some people be like, oh well, you, you know, you didn't suppress your hormones. Even if I'd suppress my hormones, you don't magically turn into a woman. If if Anthony Joshua, the boxer, if LeBron James goes on, <laughs> starts taking estrogen. And suppressing his testosterone for a year or two, you you think he's suddenly gonna be on an equal footing? It's completely insane. It's preposterous. The muscle mate belts already there. It's there. It's laughable. They're putting males in female prisons.、Mm. Yeah, well, that is real. Women are getting pregnant in prison all of a sudden, and they're like, "Hmm, how is this happening?" Yeah. <laughs> I mean, is that sustainable? It's it's you can't hide from the truth in such a in such a ridiculous fashion. At some、mm. point, the rubber meets the road. The chickens home, come home to roost, and people stand up and push back. And the thing that's taking long is just the fact that people lack courage. That's all it is. Well, here you are in a country where, in one state in Victoria, under the name of anti-conversion laws. Oh, good grief!、Uh, you've probably heard this.、Mm-hmm. People will have told you about it. A parent could remonstrate with a thirteen or fourteen-year-old child who wanted a tattoo. No, you shouldn't have a tattoo. That's not a good idea. They're tasteless. You'll regret it later.、Mm. But if you dared. To suggest to a child who says, "I'm not sure that I'm in the right body." Yes. If you fail to affirm, as a parent, as a parent, let alone as a counsellor,、yeah. a doctor, whatever,、mm-hmm. you can get into appalling trouble. And the alternative government effectively says, "We won't touch this stuff,、yes. despite the international evidence." In、yes. the in the country you come from, in Great Britain, if、mm-hmm. I can say you come from Great Britain, yes, they've closed Tavistock.、Mm-hmm. The 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 material out of that place should tell anybody who's got half a brain and half a shred of integrity that we are visiting a disaster on our children. Yes, yes. it's um it's it's hard to overstate, and I I don't like I love human beings. I love people. That shows everything good. Everything、yeah. I do is based on the fact that I I genuinely love human beings and I love this life and I want us as individuals and as societies to continually be improving. Um, but one of, if I can give the, the greatest criticism of what is happening in the West, is I think that people are too many people are just being cowardly. People hate it when I use the word cowardice because everyone's like, "Oh, well, what about this? What about this?" And it's like, well, cowardice doesn't mean that there's no potential fear or that there's no, no potential consequences. No, it means, it means that、fear. those things can exist, but you do and say what is right. Yeah. Over, courage is overcoming your, your natural fears. Exactly. So I understand the conditions that have been created, that have led to this chilling effect of people feeling like they can't speak out on certain things, or they can't do or say what they believe to be right or correct, or they can't even state certain objective facts. People won't even Matt Walsh from Daily Wire made the whole movie going around asking people what is a woman. Everyone knows the answer. Every single person in that documentary knows the exact answer. They won't say it because ultimately they're cowards.、That's、what、it. is really worrying is that the people in that in that film、yes. that you talked about, 
it's the academics, the people mm-hmm. who are, if you like, educating up our young yes. who are most reluctant mm-hmm. to deal with reality. Yeah, and it's not, it's, and it's, not under, it's not hard to understand why, but it's because those conditions have been created. But how have those conditions been created? It's through cowardice. It's one of the reasons why I even became more outspoken because I've, I've had these conversations, anyone knows, who knows me privately, I've had these conversations with, with people for a very long time. Um, but in 2018 in particular, I was like, you know what, there, my voice is needed in some of these conversations. I didn't plan on being, okay, I want to be this warrior for free speech or liberty or anything like that. But I was just like, look, this stuff is getting insane on multiple levels. I don't like this narrative, that narrative, that narrative. The race conversation, the gender conversation, the you know, male-female relationships conversation, this, 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 like the whole COVID stuff. I'm like, look, this is that one, that one latter one coming later down the line. But I'm just like, look, not what needs to be said is not being said and people are afraid to say it. And it's weird when you can tell when people know the truth or they know reality, but they won't say it because they're afraid of backlash or potentially offending someone out there in the ether or anything. And it, you know, what's the point of having, you know, if you don't have free speech, if you don't use your free speech, you lose your free speech. People have this idea of free speech just being something that's like a policy position, right? Like, oh, First Amendment in the USA, that's the freedom of speech. Freedom of speech isn't, it's, it's also social and cultural. Right? What's the point of having so-called freedom of speech if you cannot use it? It's there. That's why it's so like, important for minorities. Yes. If you really care about multiculturalism, you really care about mm-hmm. minorities, you really care about the marginalized, yes. you'll defend free speech. You'll defend freedom of speech. And if you want to actually be able to understand the world and solve, and solve things, you have to be able to speak. I mean, sometimes you'll be uncomfortable. Sometimes you won't. You'll hear something you don't like. You'll hear so every day we're confronted with things that we we don't like, we don't find comfortable, we may find offensive, we don't like. But it's you know my my reaction is not okay. We need to censor, we need to censor and ban and deplatform everybody who's aus- aus- espousing those ideas. It's like okay, well let's let's have a conversation. And as very well portrayed in that documentary, when you try to have the conversation and ask questions, you see why they rely on censorship. Yeah. You see right why they rely on deplatform because they yeah. don't have an argument. Yeah. You don't like if the whole thing is shattered. If if I can shatter your whole ideology with one question, a basic one that my you know 3 4 year old <laughs> niece could answer, then yeah. what what is your what's your whole belief system? What what are you standing on? So whilst whilst people are very very concerned with the way a lot of this stuff is going, I think it's very easily beatable. I think it's very easily beatable. I don't think this is some huge, yes, it's captured a lot of people, but it's captured far fewer people than I think people realize. Um, I, I, the, I, data, the data tells you that. Yeah, it's, it's just that people will not speak up, yeah, but the yeah, number yeah. who are willing to is rising. Yeah. So I think yeah. that's positive. So I would put it in these terms, okay. in terms of a speech I gave recently, what you decided was that the way to tackle cancel culture was courage culture. Yes. That's what we need. Yes. A culture of courage. Uh, you're a brilliant communicator. Thank you. You really are. But you've used a, a, a medium that I wouldn't have chosen as a great way mm. to convey the good, the noble and the true rap music. Mm-hmm. I tend to think, as I think probably a lot of people do, 
of my generation that it's dark, it's inward looking, it mm -hmm. plays to base instincts, it's depressed and depressing. Mm -hmm. That's not where you take it. Mm -hmm. How did that happen? Yeah, well, some of it is, right? So your observation is not wrong. There's plenty of rap music and music in general, rap, not yours. pop, rock, and so on. No, not mine. Not mine, because that's not who I am. It's not the type of person I am. That's not where my mind is. That's not my background. That's not my life. That's not the message I want to convey to the world. And so from the beginning of when I first started out doing my music, I always just said, look, I'm just going to be genuine and I'm just going to be authentic. I'm just going to be authentic. Um, in hip hop, people like to say, keep it real, keep it real. But again, that's one of those phrases that's often used, but a lot of people don't. Right? A lot of people fabricate things and exaggerate things and play to this and play to that. And my message is always just overall, the, the through line between everything I do. Sometimes people get confused when I explain to them who I am and what I do, because if I say that I'm a rapper, it, it's often funny, it depends on what I say first. If I tell people first that I'm a rapper, or I tell them first that I'm an author, or I tell them first that I'm a you know, public speaker, or this, depending on which one, it, it sort of sets the tone for where they go. Like whether someone knows I went to Oxford first or they know I'm a rapper first, I get quite different reactions. Um, if you say you're an, I went to Oxford and then it comes out later you're a rapper, they're like, huh? <laughs> you say you're a rapper and then it comes out later, I say I went to Oxford, they're like, what? That doesn't make sense. And so, um, but the through line through everything that I do is really about wanting to positively inspire and motivate and empower other people. That's really what the message is about. When I started in my music, <clears throat> That's why it's positive. That's why it's got encouraging messages, motivating messages. It's also authentic. I'll talk about my experiences and the things that I'm seeing and thinking, be it positive or negative. But the overall, the overall theme, the overall energy, the overall lyricism is always going to be trending towards the positive. I try to do that in everything I do, every interview, every podcast, my overall outlook. That's where I want, I'm, I'm trying to lift people up. I'm not trying to tear people down. I'm not trying to deconstruct and dismantle everything we have in the world. I'm not trying to make people feel depressed or make people angry or make people feel some type of venom or animosity or resentment towards their fellow human beings or themselves. There's too much of that in our society. There, there's so much negative messaging implicitly and explicitly. And as you've correctly observed, some of it is sadly in the music itself. Some of it is in the music. Some of it is very destructive in terms of the messaging. Some of it is like, you know, I wouldn't want my nieces or nephews listening to certain stuff. I wouldn't want them listening to some of the things that I listen to, but I'm like, okay, well that's adult content. I'm an adult, so, you know, I can listen to it without it influencing me in a certain way. A question I get asked a lot as a rapper is how much, how much should, should rappers be role models or why do you think that so much of hip hop or rap or popular music in general is so negative, why, why do they talk about these things, what are the themes, and so on. And I can't speak for every artist, but I think something that's actually a more interesting question is why are people so drawn to it? Yeah, that's, uh, couldn't yeah. <laughs> yeah. I that, think That's got to be the question. Yeah, I think that's the more interesting. If art reflects life, yes. what's going on? Yes, what, what's going on, right? I mean, I'm, I'm a rapper, I, I put out positive music, there's plenty, there's plenty of rappers who put out positive, inspirational, right. uplifting, wholesome music, but they're not as popular generally speaking, as the ones who largely do the opposite. Mm -hmm. Why is that? They're not getting as many streams. People aren't buying as many records. People are not going to their concerts or buying their merch in the same numbers and so on. So 
why? Why? Let's look at the whole entertainment world. What about video games? What are the best-selling video games? Like Grand Theft Auto? You know, all these first-person shooter games? What are the most popular movies, right? A lot of them are just you know, horror movies, action movies where people are getting blown up and shot and so on. And so there's something about, you know, and I, I think I know why it is. I think I know why it is, but I think that question is, that question is rarely asked as to what is it that draws us to those themes of... You know, why, why do we like gangster movies? Everyone, we, all, we like gangster movies. Why? It's pretty, it's a bit dark. <laughs> like, no, hopefully that's not what any of us are aspiring towards, to moving kilograms of cocaine and shooting our enemies and taking over territories and this and that. But it, 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 there's something compelling and interesting about it. And I think that's the sort of dark side that maybe we don't want to wrestle with in a way. And I think, I think some of it, I think some of the appeal is... Number one, some of it is just like an, an, an entertainment and an escape in a way. Um, but I also think some of it is the fact that we live in a very, thank God, safe and you know, like compared to human history, which was extremely violent and there were wars all the time and there was famine and plagues and pestilence and all this. If you live in the modern Western world, I mean, even if you don't live... That, that if even, even if you're not at the top of the socioeconomic hierarchy, we live, we live good lives on a global scale, on a historical scale. We live good lives. We're, we're comfortable. We're, we're pretty safe. We're pretty secure. And so I think that, but within us, I think men and boys in particular, we have this thing called, you know, we have this thing called testosterone and we are, we're still genetically we still have that warrior spirit. We still have that looking you know, for fighting dreams, and looking conquering. For and this, to, to yeah, 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 right. And so, and someone to protect at, the, at, at best, and yes, someone to look after. Yes, exactly. We still but have. They don't that, want us to protect and look after them. Yeah, we still have that fighter and warrior spirit within us. So I think that we are drawn to some of these forms of entertainment because it's a, it's actually a healthy and nonviolent way of experiencing or feeling some of that without actually going out there and doing something crazy, mm. right? I mean, it's much, <laughs> as much as people might not want their kids listening to certain types of music or watching it, it's certainly better than playing it out in real life, right? Like I'd much rather have little kids playing a violent video game or listening to uh, music with questionable content than actually going out and living that yeah, as long as they're not world. shaped by those experiences. Yeah, they? you know, and, and, that's a, and that's an interesting one because there's still that question of, okay, well, to what degree is that level of influence? And I think the honest answer is it depends on, I think the honest answer is it depends on the individual. It's interesting with hip-hop and rap because to me, hip-hop and rap has the most positive meta-narrative of pretty much any form of music. And when I say the meta-narrative, I'm not talking about word for word what these guys are all saying in their lyrics, but when you look at their stories, when you look at the fact, you take a Jay-Z or a 50 Cent, these are guys who grew up in crappy parts of New York, had all sorts of problems, got involved in gang culture, drug dealing, so on and so forth, went on to become a billionaire in one case and multiple hundred millionaire. But you're not supposed to be able to make it in America with, if you're black. Ooh. So we, haven't you heard the narrative? Yeah, well, 
well, this is the thing, right? It's 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 interesting the narrative. So if someone says is uh you know is Fifty Cent a good role model? Lyrically, I'm like no, <laughs> no. Like if if you're gonna just listen to all of his songs and take that all at face value, if you look at what he's actually done though, this guy he got he got shot nine times, dropped from his record label, came back independently, created his own albums and distributed them and sold them to get the money. If you look at the whole story and everything he's done now, he's clothing companies, liquor brands, this, this. As a businessman, you're like, whoa, this is a guy, I mean, you want to talk about a rags to riches story. Wow. If you want to talk about someone, you, the American dream, wow. Jay-Z is the, is the American dream. Coming to, um, to America, since you've touched on it, yeah. I, um, I'm one who's philosophically at core utterly opposed to racism and find it abhorrent. Yes. And I say that very sincerely. And I know that, according to many of the modern thinkers, just saying that proves I am a racist. <laughs> I'm not sure how that works. But anyway, yeah. let's come to America. Black Lives Matter. Mm. Is America in a better place or a worse place after all of those efforts when so many well-meaning yes. Americans turned on themselves and decided they were more racist than they were right back in the 1960s mm. when you know Jimmy Crow, in theory, came to an end? America better or worse place as a result of all of that activity? What do you think? Yeah, I would argue overall I think it's been a net negative. I think it's been a net negative. Um, and I think that that would be the general perception, both amongst people who are in favor of the BLM movement slash organization, as well as those who are, no one is opposed to the statement, but people are certainly, some people are opposed to, you know, certainly the organization and the movement is somewhere somewhere between the two. But I think that people on both sides of that aisle would believe that the perception of race relations in the USA has declined. In fact, this has been, there are actual studies, you can see this, and it has declined over the past couple decades. And it, 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 it really started to around the time that the BLM movement really started getting pushed, um, actually during Barack Obama's term, second term, I believe. Um, I think that it's, it's, a, it's such a strange, it's such a strange issue because as you've alluded to, racism is really dumb. Racism is one of those topics where people want to like get super intellectual about and think is this real. I just think it's dumb. Like it's just stupid. Like on 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 every level. I think the the original OG form of racism uh, that plagued our countries, our histories is is and was just dumb. Like to judge or mistreat or hurt or kill another human being based on the couple millimeters of you know, our epidermis that you, that you can see or the fact that someone comes from a different back. It's, it's dumb, it's stupid. Like we all know that someone's decency, someone's content of character, their belief, all the internal stuff, you know, if this room burned, if, if this whole room, this whole building burned down and for, unfortunately we all pass away 
and all that's left is our, our charred skeletons, right? Who's going to be, oh, that, that was a black man. That was a white man. That was an Asian. Like, no one knows. No one knows. Like, we're, we're the same. Like, internally, you know, we have different meat suits. But um, it's such a, it's so silly. And I think even a child would, a child who's not had this put into their head, they'd find it silly. They'll just be like, what are you talking about? These are just my friends. These are my mates. Like, I don't think it's good to tell a young child. I think it's, I think it's disgusting to tell a young child of any racial or ethnic background that they are either inherently victims or oppressors or that they should mistreat or will be mistreated or that they should like that their that their skin color is fundamentally some source of shame or guilt or victimhood or oppression or character any of that it, the, the idea that your that this this one immutable characteristic that you have makes you a it makes you any any of these things an oppressor a victim whatever it is the fact that some oh you know what some people someone who shared your skin color x amount of time ago did a bad thing by the way which is true for i'm not aware of any (laughs) race ethnicity nationality where there hasn't been someone from that who's done some terrible stuff in the past but in, as a society, we know that if there's a guy who looks somewhat similar to me and he goes and commits a crime down the street or wherever, am I responsible for that? Because he could look exactly, he could be, I don't have an identical twin. If I had an identical twin brother and he went out and did something horrible, I have zero guilt in that. I've, I've not done any, let alone someone, one of my ancestors, my great, great, I don't know what my great, 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 great grandfather did. I have no idea. I don't even know who he was. If he did something wonderful, I can't take credit for it. If he did something horrible, I'm not guilty of it. Simple. It's, it's not. It's it's a very simple concept. We we understand this when it comes to the way laws and legality yeah. works. You don't just arrest the guy who looks somewhat similar to the guy who <laughs> to the guy who did the thing. It's it, it's completely crazy. And you don't treat as a victim uh, someone who shares certain characteristics with the person who was actually victimized. We have to go back to just seeing people as individuals because that is the ultimate minority. Another thing you've said, uh, to shift gears a little bit, uh, that got a tremendous reaction. Uh, 20 things we learned about humanity mm. from, from COVID, our experiences mm-hmm. in COVID. Yeah. Tell us about what we learned from COVID about <sighs> ourselves. Wow. Yeah. So I wrote this thread in, I think it was July 2021, where I was just reflecting on some of the things I've noticed or had confirmed about human behavior during the honestly global experiment yeah. of the uh, so-called pandemic. Um, it, I think it was a huge psychological opportunity. It was like a study. It was really an ability to understand how human beings deal with fear and peer pressure and groupthink and authority and authoritarianism versus liberty and so on. I, I was, man, I felt like in the past two and a half years, I, I, I learned as much as I, I did in the previous 20, just when it comes to human interactions and psychology. So I, I wrote this thread. It was, yeah, the 20, 20 different points of just short observations of things that I noticed, not just in my, in my home country, but seeing things that were happening all around the world. I think the very first one 
think the number one, the first in the thread, I think, was most people would rather be in the majority than be right. I yeah. think that was the first one. Most people would rather be in the majority than be right. And that was going to just be a single tweet. And then I thought, wait, no, I've got more. I've got more. And I came up with 19 more. Um, I would, would you like me to, to, go, to go into any of them in particular? Well, the one I'd like to tease out is okay. the way in which we, strangely, despite the lessons of history, seem to prefer security mm. to freedom. Yes. That we'll flee to have somebody tell us what to do, save us, save us, save us, mm. rather than cling to our freedoms, which are so hard won and so easily lost. Yes. Because you lose those freedoms. Yes. You may not get them back. Yeah, well, I, okay, I, I, I have sort of two answers to this one. I think the first one is recognizing that in a relatively free country or state or, or just anywhere, I think that the one thing that a reasonable, rational thinking person will trade for liberty and freedom is safety slash security, right? I think that we like to, certainly in the West, we like to assume that liberty, freedom is the highest value of both the society and of the vast majority of individuals. I don't think it's true. I simply don't think it's true. I was afraid you might say that. Yeah, I don't think it's true. I think people, I don't think, I mean, people value safety and security more than they value freedom and liberty. It's, it's played out. We saw it. We literally saw it happen across billions of people. You saw how quickly people traded it. That was one of my points. One of my points in those 20 things is when people are scared, not only will they accept authoritarianism, they will demand it. They'll demand it. They'll demand it. Yeah. Right. They want and somebody to keep them, tell them what to do. Yes. And stay safe. Yes. Keep them and, safe. and it's because I think the desire for safety yeah. and self-preservation overrides, especially when you're scared, especially in fear, like it, it overrides the general yeah. desire for, because I guess if you think about it, freedom is, uh, freedom and liberty is something you don't notice until it's taken. A bit right? like eyesight. Yeah, <laughs> you, don't, you don't notice it. Like if, you're, if you have liberty, you yeah. just go about your day, you're not really thinking of freedom and liberty. You're just like, but if something suddenly threatens your safety and well-being or is perceived to do so, you... You know, the, the desire for safety and security is not something that's inherently bad. It's how we, we survive. Like, it's a, normal, it's a normal thing. The danger, as you alluded to, is the potential authoritarianism or totalitarianism that can, control, that can control with that. And what happened over the past few years is the danger, the way that politicians and media and the way the whole narrative was, and due to the nature of the threat, was the danger is other people, right? Yes, it's a virus, but it's other people who you need to be afraid of. Your family, your, uh, your, your school, your classmates, your friends, every, every, your, the person walking down the street, just by them walking past you or breathing on you or smiling at you could transmit this virus to you. Even if they don't have it, somehow magically, they can transmit viruses they don't even have all of a sudden, right? Like, and so there was this paranoia, there was this hysteria, and all of the messaging played into that. So I think this is why people were so quick to give it up. Go, this, the second answer I was thinking is that, I was actually just thinking about this last week, so it's a good question. I think that there's a flaw in the way that we learn history. Because you alluded- 
Hmm? Any one? There are several flaws. <laughs> but I think one that's overlooked is that we we learn about what happened yeah. and when it happened, yeah. but we don't go deep on the why and the how. We don't go deep on it, right? You you learn about whatever it is, World War II. You learn about Soviet Russia. You learn about Maoist China. You learn about uh, Germany under Nazi rule. You learn about the Rwandan genocide more recently. You learn about what, whatever it is. You, you, you learn about, okay, this is what happened. Here's when it was. These were the people involved. This is what played out. This, you know, that, that's what happened. There's not a lot of psychological analysis of, okay, where were the German people in 1930 that allowed, you have, you have to, firstly, I think you have to recognize that German people today are the same as German people in 1930. Psychologically, biologically, these are the same people. Human nature right? doesn't change. These, right. these, these are the same people. This isn't some for, it's easy to have this lazy view of history and go, oh, well, they were just, they were just stupid and brainwashed or immoral yeah. or whatever. It's I like, wouldn't no. have joined the Hitler Youth. Yes, right. It's like, no, these are, these are the same people, fundamentally the same people, prone, you know, yeah. same virtues and weaknesses and ways of thinking and flaws in thinking and so on. And you have to really insert yourself into it and go, okay, this happens and then this, how, how was this person able to do this? Why, why didn't people, you were talking before about people speaking up. Why didn't, why didn't people speak up? Why did people do things that they knew were wrong? Why didn't people do this? Why? And hopefully people can answer that now after seeing how certain things have, have played out over these last few years, if they didn't get it before. But I think that we're going to keep on repeating that in different ways. And by the way, I want to be clear, I'm not directly comparing the uh, lockdowns and madness of what's happened over the last few years. As much as I've hated it, I'm not directly comparing that to uh, you know, Nazi Germany before someone wants to go there and be stupid with it. But psychologically, yeah, you saw the, the same. You saw the same triggers. Yep. You saw the same groupthink. You saw the same, you know, feeling of safety and security overriding mm. freedom and liberty, and, and even decency and the way that people treat one another. People, I mean, like I haven't forgotten. Last year, people were last year. People were happy to throw unvaccinated people into freaking gulags, man. People were happy to segregate, discriminate, lock people in their houses, deny people medical care, so on, stop, kick people out of school, fire people from their jobs. I haven't, for, none of that is forgotten. It all happened. I played out particularly badly in this country. Um, so, well, you, unfortunately, you, I was yeah. making this point to our former prime minister the other day, yeah. we've become seen internationally mm-hmm. through the lens of what happened particularly in Melbourne. Yep. Internationally. Correct. People, when I go overseas now, say, what happened to the Australians? Yeah, I'll How be did re- you change. I'll be real with you, John. I, I I did not think I'd be in this country right now. I I'll be a hundred percent honest. I wrote off Aust- like in the past in 2020, 2020, I, I was like, man, I am not Australia and Canada. Like, I'm not going to those countries. Like they've shown their true colors. I have no interest in going to Australia. I'm not like, um, and which which is. That gives me no pleasure to say. I mean, after the USA and UK, my next biggest audiences with everything I do are Canada and Australia. And I'm just seeing this all playing out from a distance. I'm seeing the videos. I'm seeing police shooting people with rubber bullets. I'm seeing people being arrested in their own houses. I'm seeing, I was just, I'm seeing all this happening. I'm just like, what on, what on earth is going on out there? And how are people okay with, how are people cheering it on? And I'm just like, man, that's dark. 
Like that's there were so differences in the yeah. states in Australia, yes, as I'm I sure you picked up. Yeah. So you're, you're in Sydney, mm -hmm. where it was, I would say, trepidatiously, relatively sane. Yeah, but none of you could leave the country. <laughs> well, the only countries you couldn't leave were North Korea and Australia. Mm. You, so, don't, you don't want to be. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> you don't want to be the only country next to North Korea where you can't leave. I mean, that's or get back in. It's it's one thing if you're out it, of it. Getting yeah, back I in. think there's even quite a big fundamental difference between not allowing people in mm. and not allowing people out. That's actually. I, I don't think the former is good either, but there's something particular. I mean, you're a, you're a citizen, a passport holder. You're the, and they're like, no, you can't, yeah. you can't leave. And and again, even like logically, I mean, it's like well, that doesn't even. The former, you can kind of, it, it still doesn't make sense, but you could under. There, there's some slight more logical rationale for it in that type of situation to say, okay, you, people can't come in, but say people can't go out. Well, we've got some lessons to learn. I, sure, I'm the first sure. to say that. But what I wanted to tease out here mm. is, is something that I've been thinking about, okay. which is that it's not just that we actually quite like being told what to do mm. and we flee for security. What the lesson from lesson, history that we're not learning is there's no such thing as a government which you give all those powers to that is all that willing to give them back to you. And we have no evidence of a government remaining benevolent mm -hmm. once the people allow themselves to be downstream of government mm -hmm. rather than maintaining their position of being upstream of government. Mm -hmm. The democracies are placing themselves at risk, surely, if their citizens are going to say, hey, Mr. Government, we actually want you to keep us safe. Mm -hmm. Because there's no evidence anywhere in history that I can find no. of no. benevolent dictators remaining benevolent or such a thing as a benevolent government that's not accountable to its people remaining yes. benevolent. doesn't happen. Yeah, well, That's I, the problem in the end. It, it is. And I, I think people forget about what they're... I think people have ultimately forgotten about what the relationship is supposed to be between general citizens and the government and agents of the government. It's supposed to be a two-way system of trust and representation and respect. There's supposed to be a dialogue there. It's not supposed to just be this top-down dictatorial regime. I think about this quite a bit mm. because I actually think we hate our own cultural value systems, Ooh. what they've become when we see them up on the stage. Mm -hmm. What do I mean by that? We now raise our children to believe that they're the center of the universe. It's very selfish what we teach our kids now. Mm. It's all about you, you know. We helicopter parent them and they're the most important person in the, in, in the world. Mm -hmm. You are. When we see our politicians behave like that, they say, no, wait a minute, it's not meant to be about you. Mm. It's meant to be about us. Mm. And for billion people, don't ask me how they work it out, watch the Queen's funeral. Mm -hmm. Because we recognise in her that she was using her power and influence as much as possible for the benefit of others, not mm -hmm. for herself. Mm -hmm. and, and, and we love that. That rings true. But we need a lot more of it. Yeah, absolutely. And... I think if you, you know, I think one of the biggest challenges that Western countries are really going through, we, we've talked about a lot of things, but I think one of the problems is just the, how would, I, how would you describe it? The, the sort of general social fabric. Yeah. So all of our countries are high, they are in supposed to be, they're high trust societies, right? They, they really function and liberty and freedom in general work when you have a strong societal fabric and people generally trust each other, generally believe one another are decent or at least trying to be. You can, 
I mean, at, at, people forget that everything's based, it's all based on trust. Absolutely. If you're driving a car mm. or, or you're crossing the street, you trust mm. that when the driver sees the red light, mm. he's going to stop mm. and people are going to obey the traffic. It, it's all based on trust. Mm. Otherwise, you'd be having accidents and collisions all the time, cars hitting each other, pedestrians. If you couldn't trust that, okay, everyone's going to, to, to follow this. So it's all based on trust. So when you shatter that trust at different levels, shatter it in the, the government, the media, the companies, the school system, academia, even within families themselves, and people are no longer able or comfortable to, to, to trust each other, then I think that's, wow, that, that disintegrates the society. And actually it leads to more authoritarianism because you can only yeah. have liberty yeah. if you have trust. I, you have yeah. to trust, okay, look, you're free, I'm free, Take, take something really simple. Take, take freedom of speech, okay? The opposition of freedom of speech is, well, if you let people speak freely, some people are going to say nasty things, like what's to stop that person from calling people racial slurs or to stop this or to stop this or what? And it's like, well, and, and that kind of concern, I think, is largely rooted in, in a distrust of other human beings and of society because there should be we have more laws beyond the laws of the land that come from the state, right? We have moral laws, we have an inner moral compass, we have re religious laws and codes, we have ways that we are raised and things that we believe. Just because something is legal to do doesn't mean it's good yeah. <laughs> or it's moral or you should do it. Um, so we, we recognize there's all types of social codes that guide and orient people's behavior and the way that they go about life. But when you shatter all that trust, what do people think? They, okay, we need more laws. We need, we need a law for this and for this. And we, look, we can't trust people to do anything. And I think if you actually think back to the policies over the past few years, it was massive distrust. Yes. It was massive distrust, right? It was, well, I can't trust that my neighbor or Phyllis, like, I, I can't trust that anyone is going to behave mm. with any type of responsibility or care. So therefore, they all need to be controlled. We need the police out there. We need the military. We need this. We need this because I can't trust anybody, right? If I, so I've had people be like, Zuby, look, you've been really, really critical of all this from day one. You know, what would you, what would you have done? I'm like, well, I would have been totally transparent. I would give guidelines and information and data, give people the information Tell people the reality. What, what are the real, what's the real risk factors? How is this stratified by age, by health condition, and so on? Have recommendations and let people live. Let people live. Give guidelines, recommendations. Oh, we've got new data, new statistics. Publish it. Publish it. And let people make their decisions. People have all types of different situations and risk factors. But instead, it was like, nope, just one size fits all. Blanket mandate, do this, do this. And I think it, it, it stemmed, I think, from distrust. And I think it's, it's led to more distrust, right? Because people have essentially been trained that you can't trust each other. You can't trust each other. Your neighbor, because what was the narrative? What was the, 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 the answer? It was, oh, well, you know, you're, someone could do that. Someone could get you sick. Someone could do this, could do this. Look, we've had viruses and diseases our, our entire lives, right? If there's no law saying that if I have a really bad cold or flu, that I'm not allowed to go to a party or an event or go to the gym or whatever. There's no law stopping me from doing that. But as a responsible adult, 
if I know I'm sick and I'm coughing and I'm sneezing and I'm hacking, I will intentionally be like, you know what? Actually, let me. Mm. I, I'm going to self quarantine myself, not by law, mm. by voluntary decision. I'm going to. I'm a responsible person. I do care about other people. I'm not trying to get other people sick. But if I'm not sick, I'm not going to act like I'm sick when I'm not. That was the craziest thing. They was like, well, whether you're sick or you're not, just everyone. Since when you quarantine healthy people? I mean, it was it was completely bonkers. Um, and so that that's kind of the way I, I, I look at things. I think perhaps my, you know my my view is, is is funnily enough, it's it's more trusting of people. I think that most people, and I say this as someone who's traveled around the world a lot, I do genuinely believe. Not in a, like, a foolish way, but most people strive towards decency. Most people are reasonably responsible if you allow them to be. Most people are generally decent if you if you if you allow if you allow people to just get get on with their life and stop not treat adults like infants, and you allow people to get on and have conversations and interact and live, then most people yes you're always going to have sadly sadly. You're you're going to have some degree of crime. There's going to be some tiny percentage of a percentage of people who want to rob, rape, steal, cheat, lie, kill. That exists in every country, to some degree. Sadly, we we've never worked out the way to completely stop crime.、Um, I don't think you can. Right? Human beings are we're we're fallen as men.、Um, but the vast, 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 vast majority of people won't do that and are not are not like that. So yes, you have your Laws of the land.、Um, I'm not here trying to abolish those or anything. But beyond that, you you have to just be able to, you have to be able to trust people. You really have to be able to trust people because that's how our society operates on every level. I think what you're saying is absolutely right. To to start to move towards、um, letting you get away and enjoy some personal freedom of your own, <laughs> can I ask you?、Um, the way you communicate reflects the way the world has changed. I think we're、mm. all on social media now, and I've heard serious authors say, "No point writing books anymore. You've got to go online."、Uh, I've heard serious social commentators say, "If you want to influence the public debate as a politician,、mm. forget about doing it through the mainstream media now. You've got to go online."、Mm-hmm. It's all changed.、Yeah. How do you see it? It is changing, and I think、um, we're in a really unique time in human history. And I don't think people fully comprehend how unique we're this time is. I think we're living in one of the greatest experiments of all time. The way that we are now able to communicate and connect with each other. I mean, if you think about how this happened, that was not even possible、yeah. a couple decades ago, or, or any time. Prior to that, the ability to, through a device, a screen, something you can carry in your pocket, the ability to reach potentially thousands or millions of people with the touch of a few buttons, regardless of geographical location and time zones, and all of this podcasting, YouTube, social media, the internet in general, it's um, I mean, it could be the most impactful. It could be the most impactful invention of all time. These 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 things combined,、um, and we don't really know. It's so new. I mean, the first iPhone came out in two thousand and six, I believe.、Mm. That's not that long ago. No, This combination、not. of smartphones plus social media is very new,、um, and it's interesting because we talked before about how human beings haven't fundamentally changed, 
And so we're not really, we're not wired to be able to be in touch and able to be in touch with so many people and access so much information and so many opinions and ideas and so on. It's amazing. I mean, you're, you're going through, you're like, wow, I can just follow this person, follow that person, but all around the world mm -hmm. and you can see what they're thinking every day. You can see what they're up to and so on. And you can, and you can reach your message back out to them. And I, I'm very thankful for this, obviously with what I do, it's allowed me to reach so many people. What we're doing right now, the fact that we, in the past, this would just be a conversation between right. yourself yeah. and myself and anyone else who's in the room. This can go online now and be seen by thousands or potentially millions mm. of people, no matter where they live. And there's something very amazing about that. If, I think it's incredibly positive, but I, I think it's also a huge, it's also a huge challenge, which people recognize. I mean, people say, oh, social media is, is toxic or it's negative or it's this and it's that. And, it can be all of these things at once. It can. It can be. Yep. <laughs> it can be incredibly positive and helpful and inspiring and motivating. You can reach for the heavens, or you can dive into the sewer. Yes, and exactly. Everything in between. Exactly. Everything in between. So, the reason I say all that is because we're only, at best, maybe fifteen minutes. Sorry, fifteen years. Yeah. <laughs> fifteen years is fifteen minutes when you're thinking about human history, but we're so new with this all. So how it all transpires down the line, we don't know because we've never, we've just never done this before. I think in the long run, it's going to be fruitful. Overall, I would say that I'm optimistic long-term. Well, thank you so much for your time and thank you for being so positive. Thank you for using all those channels that you have at your disposal to, um, to be so informative, to provide such valuable content. And I, I hope you keep talking. I hope people keep listening. Thanks, John. I often say I don't want to tell people what to think, but I want to tell people to think. Well, yeah. it's been a ball. Appreciate it, John. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Conversations with John Anderson. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au.